0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Darsha, and I'm Dr. Altamash Raja, and welcome to Medicine Redefined, a podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Welcome back to another episode of Medicine Redefined. We have a special repeat guest today, Megan Landris. You guys might remember Megan from Student Loan Planner a few months ago when we took a deep dive into PSLF and student loans in general. And with the state of current affairs with student loans and um, all the mobility, particularly the recent forgiveness plan by the Biden administration, I wanted to get Megan back on here to get her take and help us dissect really what this plan is all about as well as touch on a couple of other important topics that we did not get to address last time. So in this show, we talk about the PSLF or the loan forgiveness proposed by the Biden administration at the end of August. We talk about the Biden's new IDR plan and what that might mean for borrowers. We also talk about the legal implications and the trajectory of student loan forgiveness, the future plans proposed by both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. We shift gears to talk about the loan repayment strategies for the non-psl of pursuer and we also revisit some risk mitigation strategies and tactics that uh, some of the listeners send questions in for so the last episode was quite popular and we had a a lot of great feedback so some of those questions uh, will be addressed in this episode as well and then we spend a good amount of time talking about building wealth you may recall that megan started off as a financial coach. In fact, she's still a financial coach. And it wasn't until she realized that student loans were a critical component of every single individual's financial burden is when she started paying attention more to getting the CSLP designation, which is a student loan planner, a certified student loan planner. And so I wanted to get her take on what it means to build wealth in the context of having student loans, particularly because many of the medical professionals and healthcare professionals embark on this journey of building wealth much later than uh, our non-medical counterparts do. We ended off with talking about the role of higher education, particularly the cost of higher education, which continues to increase year by year and is clearly putting an undue burden on uh, the system in itself, but also on the individual, which is contributing to burnout and poor financial and mental health. And uh, ultimately, um, the root cause of a lot of the problems and warrants discussion today. So without further delay, please enjoy this repeat discussion with Megan Landris. All right, Megan, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about today.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, I was actually thinking about this before we got started. Um you, you're our first repeat guest, like officially and and backed by popular demand. (laughs) Um, You know, the last discussion that we had was, uh, was interesting and and it was informative for me, but also got a lot of great feedback from, from listeners as we talked about. Mm -hmm. And there are some follow-up questions, so we'll throw that in there, but I just, I want to get right into it, right? There's just been so much movement. And uh, so we're recording this at the end of September. I think it was August 24th. There was this big announcement by the Biden administration about everything that's going to happen with loan forgiveness. So let's let's go right into it. Like, how did that come about? I mean, obviously, you guys saw this coming probably from a mile away. But uh, for those of us who aren't who don't have a pulse on it as much, you know, what were the the steps that put this into play, and and, and is it here to stay? Which we'll talk about later.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, gosh, I mean, Biden had campaigned on the fact that he was going to cancel student loan debt, and so it was constantly something that kept coming back up. As can we do it? you know, is he allowed to do it? And, you know, the, uh, all the politics that go into it. Um, So he's using his executive authority under the uh, uh, kind of the the COVID umbrella, I guess you could say. Um, That's, that's what we're using right now to allow, or I say we, (laughs) that's what he is using right now to Uh allow for this cancellation to, to be, um, you know, to come forth from what we understand Sounds like it's going to be rolling out where the application will be available in October. Do you want me to do a kind of a recap of what it is though?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think okay. that, you know, people say, "Oh, up to 20,000," but maybe 10,000. So like, who who does 20,000 apply to, 10,000 that kind of
2: stuff?
1: Yes. So, first and foremost, there's an income limitation to this uh, so if you are a single person or if you're married filing separately from your spouse, then your income has to be less than 125,000 for either 2020 or 2021's tax year so that was at first not known like we thought that they might be going off of the most recently filed tax return but they're saying 2020 or 2021 um so that's cool because i think that opens the door for people who may have made less in 2020. Um, so that's for a single person or filing married separately for joint it's 250000 or if you're a household married filing taxes jointly, has to be less than 250000 And this is only relevant to Department of Ed held loans, so federal loans. Um, you could get up to 20000 of loan cancellation if you ever had a Pell Grant awarded to you during your schooling. And you could know this pretty quickly by logging into your studentaid.gov account. There will be two numbers if you had a grant at some point you'll see your balance and you'll see grants and if you see grants that tells you that you've you've at some point gotten a Pell grant so that would give you the 20,000 of, of loan cancellation if you didn't have a Pell grant you would get 10,000 and the application for this is coming out in early October so coming up probably right as this comes out <laughs>
0: of course and then actually some people are going to ask, well, you know, what if I had Pell Grants and then I ended up paying them off because it was a large amount? Will I get some type of refund?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, in Pell Grants, I think Pell Grants are getting confused with Perkins loans. So a Pell mm. Grant is just a, a grant of money that you don't have to pay back. It helped reduce the cost mm. of your schooling. Um, if you have Perkins loans, they are eligible for this as well. But it's going to the priority order of where the money goes is first it's going to go to your direct loans. Um, but if you did, let's say you paid off your balance completely in full already um, with with the Department of Education, you can ask for a refund at this point. Anyone can ask for a refund of any payments that they've made since March 13th of 2020. You can get that money back. Um, you probably can't ask for just $10,000 back or $20,000 back. They'll probably give you everything that you paid back, <clears throat> which is fine because you can then just take whatever's left and pay it pay the rest of it off. Um, but that's, that's a way that you can take advantage of the 10 or the 20,000 if you've already paid loans off. If um, you've paid below the threshold, so let's say your balance was at like 12,000, you paid 3,000 recently, so it's down at 9,000 and you're supposed to get the 10,000 of cancellation. Well, they'll forgive the 9,000 that's left over and they will refund you automatically the 1,000 to get you up to the 10, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Yeah. And you know, what's cool about that, I think that the, the piece of success, the 2020, 2021 year, right? I mean, obviously those years, I think a lot of healthcare workers had their hours truncated or somebody even laid off. And so they weren't able to make what they usually would under normal circumstances and might not qualify mm-hmm. for that income threshold. So that's, I guess that's cool about that
2: mm-hmm.
0: but that wasn't the only thing that the biden administration put out right they put out this new proposition of an idr plan
2: mm-hmm. and this is
0: what's particularly exciting for me because as you can imagine you've got to talk about you know for for those of us who are who have just really large burdens and mm-hmm. again selfishly i'm going for pslf so i'm like okay well, all right great ten does doesn't even matter mm-hmm. it's going to get forgiven anyway <laughs> right um so the 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 second part this is what kind of excites me, and I really hope uh, it, it gets uh, put into place. But, so can you talk a little bit about the IDR plan?
1: Yes. So they did propose a new IDR plan. Um, And I want to preface this by saying it is still a proposal. Um, I start, I try to stay pretty pessimistic about things. And y'all may have asked me about this with forgiveness last time. You're like, do you think it's going to happen? And I probably said no. (laughs) And here we are. So. (laughs) No.
0: So actually, well, what's interesting. I'm I'm surprised to to hear you say that because last time we, we talked about how it's just, okay these were your words it's woven into the fabric right it's the mpn node, and oh, yeah. what well, we talked about the the headlines are 97 percent, and how that's just ridiculous and just just not understanding it uh so I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that you're pessimistic about this part yeah
1: well yeah pslf is definitely woven into the fabric for sure i meant more so like widespread forgiveness i think i was a little skeptical oh, okay. like back then so yeah this yeah. this cancellation the 10 or the twenty thousand, is for anybody and we weren't sure if it was going to happen, but the IDR, uh, the new IDR proposal. Um, so it is exciting because it can reduce potentially what income driven repayment, um, is for everyone, meaning it it just reduces the payment slightly for a couple reasons. It, um, increases the poverty line. So how it's proposed, it increases the poverty line deduction that goes into how they calculate the income driven payment. So that means, Um, you know, you're getting a larger deduction off of your discretionary income uh, or to to create your discretionary income, I mean. Um, And it's allowing for undergraduate loans to be at 5% instead of 10% of discretionary income. And most folks who have gone to, well, I won't say most, but there are folks who have borrowed for both undergrad and graduate school. And if you have some undergraduate loans, they're not going to be a large portion of your balance, but there will be a portion that will be charged then at five percent of your discretionary income instead of ten. So both of those things could make the payment much smaller than what it is right now um, at the ten percent for really anybody. Um, it, graduate or undergraduate loans or not, because of the poverty line deduction being increased. Um, So that's good because that can help people get to loan forgiveness more efficiently, just paying less, which is always the goal when you're going towards forgiveness. Um, The other thing that they're doing, which is not related to public service loan forgiveness, but what they had proposed was shortening the longer term forgiveness timeline. So if you're not doing PSLF, you could still go towards IDR's forgiveness after 20 or 25 years But for the 20 years, as the rules stand now, you have to be eligible for pay. And some people aren't eligible for pay because they borrowed before 2007. So this new proposal is saying that no matter what, anybody could have loan forgiveness on this plan after 20 years. So it could shorten the timeline for folks, reduce the payment for folks as well, which helps make forgiveness look more and more attractive to more and more people, (laughs) which is good. So that's a, in yeah, a absolutely. nutshell what they're proposing.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good overview. I So I think, you know, last time we talked a little bit about how to calculate discretionary income. Mm-hmm. Could, could we just use some loose numbers to just demonstrate? So last time it was what? It's 175% and to 25%. Is that what it is? From it's the, um, line?
1: the poverty line right now is 150%. Okay. of the poverty line deduction. And the poverty line, you can Google this, it's, it changes okay. every year. But um, right now, if you're a household size of one, that poverty line deduction is about 20,000. And mm-hmm. so if you make 100,000, you get that poverty line deduction of 20, your discretionary income is 80,000. And that's what the payment is based off of. Um, so that's what I mean by discretionary income.
0: Right, So, but it's gonna be increased from one hundred and fifty. To 225
1: percent? Oh, yes. Yeah, to 225.
0: Now, the other thing that, you know, I've been listening to Travis, of course, I'm I'm avid listener of the podcast, and Travis has kind of been talking a a little bit about, and as you mentioned earlier, like this is our proposition. And I think what the expectation is that the the opposition, right, the Republican Party is really going to push back. And they actually have started pushing back. We're going to talk in a moment. I I heard Travis talking about the bill that they proposed, the real act. But what are the potential legal implications of this? if
1: any. Yeah. So, well, there's, I think the, the most immediate legal implications are going to be for this cancellation that's coming out. And there's already been a pretty serious lawsuit that we are a little, we're, we're watching closely because they, I think it makes a good point. So the, what the lawsuit is saying right now for the cancellation, uh, it is someone who is pursuing PSLF, so the 10,000 of cancellation, 20,000 of cancellation, not super helpful because your payments are based off of income, not the balance. And you know, you, you get 10,000 knocked off, whatever. You, you get less forgiven later, but you nothing changes with what you pay. Um, the taxability of cancellation, Varies. There are certain states, only five states right now, that have not conformed to the the federal definition or uh, the federal guidance on how they're going to be taxing student loan forgiveness between now and 2026. So that means there are certain states. California is one of them. It's the biggest one that would tax this ten thousand or twenty thousand of cancellation. So this person's argument or this lawsuit's argument is it's harming people. Um, because this person doesn't need the 10 or 20,000 um, because they're going towards public service loan forgiveness. <clears throat> they can't really opt out of it if they're automatically going to get it because some people are automatically going to get the cancellation um, since their income is on file, which most people for PSLF would have their income on file because they're on an income driven plan. Um, so this person would get it hypothetically, you know, automatically not being able to opt out and then they would have to pay taxes on this. So, you know, a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand, they might have to pay taxes right. on. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so a lot of people, though, haven't, re- well, at least shouldn't have recertified in the last maybe two years. Mm-hmm. Will that still be the case? Because the updated income isn't registered, right?
1: Right. So that's, yeah, so that's also the mechanics of this, like the argument I could also argue against saying, well, how would they have your income if you haven't updated, mm-hmm. you know, but if this person or if, if someone recently, you know, got into public service loan forgiveness, they, you know, applied cause we thought payments were going to kick in last year just to get set up, like mm. then their income would be, and they would be harmed in that way. Um, yeah. So I get the argument. Um, I, I think. That could be solved by maybe an opt-out option, <laughs> but um, so that's that's the most immediate challenge. Is just you know it's going to cause harm to certain folks, um, which some folks. Yeah, you're asking a lot there of the Department of
0: Ed though at that point. Yes, putting an opt-out option.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's you know, and then there's um, so there's also the question as to does Biden have the authority to to mm-hmm. make that call and it's under this covid umbrella and if on one side he's saying hey we're out of it like everything's fine you know but on the other side he's saying but we're we're using it for xyz like that there's some contradiction there on um you know are we still affected by covid and in this pandemic mind or not right. you know so that's also a question
0: oh god yeah yeah this is uh, the never ending pandemic and it really <laughs> i mean yeah you know it really depends on, I mean, of course, in the healthcare setting, different rules, different masking mandates, mm-hmm. um, different discussion, different time. But what's your sense, though? Like, in terms of a timeline, you mentioned earlier, if I understood correctly, that October, for those who aren't automatically enrolled and can opt out, um, you have to apply, right? I think early October, I might have seen on the website, or later October, sometime in, in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if people apply and then get approved, I mean, can that be taken back? Like, what's the timeline of this lawsuit? Like, when it will mm-hmm. be solidified and here to stay?
1: Yeah. So the application is said to come out early October. Um, mm-hmm. It would be on studentaid.gov, and we are at this point recommending if you want this, apply for it immediately. Like, get in there. Treat it as a first come, first served kind of thing. Um, if you are, if you do apply by November fifteenth, the cancellation is said to be done by the end of the year. Um, okay. What could happen is there could be something, you know, this this case or there, there could be some kind of injunction that's filed that that pauses everything that makes this mm-hmm. freeze. So the question is, well, if the people, you know, the people who have already applied, like what happens to them? Um, I think or I think it's it's the opinion that it'll probably just freeze everything where no one's getting anything canceled quite yet, but that would also be reason for them to pause payments again or to extend payments further. Yeah. So if, if that happens, I think people aren't going to be harmed in that way in in the sense that, you know, they were counting on that to come through because they'll just pause payments for longer and have the 0% interest for longer, which, uh, you know, there are certain parties that don't want that. So it's, we're balance, it's like a balancing act it's like yeah. w- you know <laughs> what do we want to happen coming up and what's the result of that
0: <laughs> so not to put you on the spot but what's your gut say do Do you feel like we're going to be in that frozen limbo period one more time which i wouldn't mind to be honest with you, more more extension of my payments do it all payments but
2: i
1: know or do you think
0: it'll it'll go through
1: i my gut says it's going to go through I I think Hmm. it's going to go through, but I could completely be wrong. And then, you know, the plan B would be, I do, if they were to pause everything or like freeze everything up where no cancellation was issued, I definitely think that they would extend things again and, you know, we'll just be in in this limbo for, for longer.
0: (laughs) So obviously this is dynamic (laughs) to say the least, Mm -hmm. um, and very controversial, depending on which side of the aisle that you're sitting on or really anywhere. But, and and you mentioned that you're somewhat pessimistic for just general loan forgiveness. So I kind of want to get a sense of like, just the future of loan forgiveness, right? We Mm -hmm. we talked about the Republican party putting out this new bill called the Real Act. Um, The Democrats have kind of put the, I guess it's the loan. I forget what the the, the full thing stands for. What can you say about that, these, these new bills that are being proposed into Congress?
1: Um, so, yep. So the, I think the new income driven plan, uh, well, so that I think it's, it hasn't sparked anything because there's always been new proposals coming in and across, you know, Congress um, for discussion. They, they've been talking about the tax implication for the longer term forgiveness forever. So there's, there's been a hmm. lot of proposals. There always has been. Um, but the new IDR waiver was meant to simplify things or, or that was what everyone wanted for a long time. They wanted just to simplify the student loan system. Well, the new proposed plan doesn't seem like it's going to simplify anything. It almost seems like it's going to make things, it might make it more simple in the sense of, you know, that might be the cheapest plan just for just about anybody, but um, it doesn't make it simple on how they calculate things or who should then be considering forgiveness versus a payoff approach. It, it just adds another layer, especially if they don't take certain plans away, which may not be a good thing to do Uh, so all that to say i think this is sparking a lot of conversation about the future of student loans and the future of what should be happening in the student loan repayment side of things um and we'll have more to come on this i think that'll be some a big topic so i think that's something to come back to in the future hey maybe i'll be your third time guest in the future (laughs) just kidding Um, i won't invite myself
0: probably (laughs) I mean, no, it's, it's probably going to be necessary. So I'm glad that you've already volunteered for that. <laughs> <laughs> I can hold to, hold to that. So yeah, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the PSLF because I, you know, I feel like we did the, the bulk of the conversation last time was about that. Mm-hmm. But I do, I did mention there were some follow up questions. So I want to take this time to kind of ask that yeah. too. You know, some of these were from, you know, my closest friends uh, in training who just happen to be brilliant physicians and they're financially savvy people too. Mm-hmm. Unlike the majority of the physicians, I can take that shot. I am one. Um and you know, one of them comes to from a close friend who who asked that, you know, what happens if someone so okay, let me back up. So we last time we talked about one of the core requirements to qualify for loan forgiveness is the consolidation process. Mm-hmm. Right. If your loans are like with Mohila, well now now Mohila's not a good example, but Nelnet or somebody yeah. and you had to get them at the time to fed loans, mm-hmm. right? Now Mohila. But what happens if somebody coming out of medical school, going through four or five years, never actually consolidated, but finished a grace period, started making repayments through that time?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are those payments still being counted? Like, what's the process of that?
1: Uh, so short answer is yes. Now, consolidation, I think, is ideal right after you graduate, because it really just simplifies your loan situation, bundles all of your loans into a direct consolidation loan, makes sure that. All loans are eligible because for PSLF, we have to have direct loans. And this is less common now, but if you have some older loans that are from like 2010 and before uh, called FFEL loans or family federal education loans, those have never been eligible for PSLF up until the PSLF waiver, which that's the environment we're in right now that expires October 31st this is where people can consolidate now to now go back and get credit for those payments. That's not going to be possible after October 31st. But if someone already had direct loans, they just had, you know, 12 different direct loans from their schooling and they've been making payments on them since they, you know, exited their grace period, then yes, those can definitely still count towards PSLF. They would just need to submit an employment certification form. Um, and if you have the wrong types of loans, you have until October 31st to consolidate to make sure that you get credit for those prior payments.
0: And that's the case even if it's not with Fed loans, if it was Nelnet, somebody else?
1: Yes. So let's say your direct loans are all with Nelnet. That's okay. They, have, they ha- all have to report their payment history to a Department of Ed. And so mm. that'll show up in your NSLDS file or the National Student Loan Data file. Um, so you submit your employment certification form so this, this might be you know no need to consolidate so your next step would be to submit the employment certification form you would send that to Mohila and that triggers Mohila to go and grab your loans and bring them over to them
0: right mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm wondering if I want to put them on the spot here yeah whatever so in your experience I know historically and just fund loans is notoriously just you know, not had good reviews, although I must say that in my experience, every time I've called them or contact support, I will, I've had a, a somewhat decent experience, mm-hmm. certainly not a negative experience. Mm-hmm. But um, Mohila has also been around for a long time, uh, working with loan servicers. Um, have they been easier to deal with? Give better information in your experience? How does that process? It's
1: definitely gotten better, yes. I think uh they've improved their processes. Um it's a and actually literally yesterday they revamped the studentaid.gov website. So it's a lot more simple. Mm. Um, like if you click on public service loan forgiveness on studentaid.gov, it takes you to the the employment certification form. It's like really simple now. Instead of like pelting you with information.
0: <laughs> yep. So that's exactly what I was gonna say that uh, the, the website at least um, it's a bit easier to navigate. Yeah. You know, another question that, that that comes to mind. Somebody wanted me to ask was that like, you know what happens to those that are already in training but then want to pursue further education even beyond the graduate mm. degree, right? So you've got your doctorate, you've got your medical degree, but then a lot of folks are now pursuing an MBA mm-hmm. while in training, in residency fellowship, mm-hmm. and then they take they need more student loans. Like, is there, um, you know, is there a cap, like, at some point where you can't take more student loans out?
1: Not for graduate programs. The cap is just the cost of attendance. So you could Hmm. be a forever student and always borrow Hmm. and have the, you know, you could borrow up to the cost of attendance, really. So um, in that case, what we recommend if someone's going back to school, um, the question is, are you still working full-time? And sometimes the answer Mm -hmm. is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. If they are, and they think they're going to be going to public service loan forgiveness, um, then there's a decision on if you want to keep your existing loans, like not for your current program, but for your old programs, if you want to keep them in repayment or not. And the, you know, why you'd want to keep them in repayment is then they're continuing to go towards PSLF because you let if you let them go into the in-school deferment, they can't be accumulating credit towards PSLF. But on, on the other end of that is the loans that you just borrowed for your new degree, they cannot go into repayment until you graduate from that degree. So you would have two different timelines towards PSLF. Um, so another part of that discussion is, you know, is that, amount that you're borrowing right now small enough to where you could just pay that off to not extend your timeline towards PSLF or do you just want to keep all the loans and in school deferment and go into repayment when you're totally done when all of the payments can count towards PSLF and the whole balance could be on the same course Um, but does that make sense how I explain that? It does, yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to think
0: of an instance where somebody would want to go to deferment, especially when they're in training. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because those are, that's the time that you want to max. Because again, as we spoke about last time, most residency programs tend to be 501c3 yeah. and do qualify and you'd have the lowest payment. So, you know, I mean, can you think of a situation where somebody would want to go to deferment? Obviously, if you can't afford it, but if you're yep. working full-time, as most trainees are, yeah, um, you'd still want to continue getting those those 120 payments, right?
1: I think, so some examples that come to mind for those who should go into deferment is someone who's clearly going to be going towards public service loan forgiveness because Mm. you're gonna add more loans to your loan profile and you're adding a little more time if you're not making payments towards PSLF right now, but it makes more sense to have all the payments count for something or count towards the 120 and like the whole balance be going towards that timeline versus putting yourself in repayment now being done let's say in eight years and then getting yourself in repayment on the rest of the loans two years later and being in repayment for two more years that that's you know like a a 12 year window of payments so for someone who's clearly going to be doing public service loan forgiveness it makes sense just to take advantage of the deferment go into repayment Mm -hmm. when everything can count um, but for those on on the other side of that, on the flip side is if someone's not sure that they're going to be doing PSLF long term, that's when I would probably suggest, well, go ahead and keep your loans in repayment now, because you could get to PSLF on the balance that you already had, and you'll have a remaining balance, but then, you know, because you'll have one chunk forgiven sooner than the next chunk, but then you could decide, you know, do I want to go private sector at this point, or so at least you'll have something forgiven. Um, so that, those are some of the conversations. Yeah. That's, that's a hard decision, though. And it helps to just talk it through with what someone wants to do.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm also trying to think about how that's a difficult calculation to do because if it's like six months that you're giving off, because essentially you're paying that six months of attending pay
2: mm-hmm.
0: that you're going to calculate off of down the road. Yeah. And, you know, what's the actual loan amount you're going to take out for a master's degree? It's not going to be the same. Hopefully, it's not going to be the same as a medical degree, yeah. although we'll talk <laughs> right. about um, the cost of our education a little bit later, as promised last time, but we didn't get to. But um, All right, so so let's move on from, from loan forgiveness, because mm-hmm. I, I think we've given its fair share of love here. But I want to talk a little bit about loan repayment strategies for the non-PSLF pursuer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, uh, a lot of close friends who, so, you know, as, as we maybe spoke about last time and offline at some point and, you know, I'm a physiatrist. So, one of the ways, uh, some, some specialty places you can go, you go to sports medicine and you can do interventional pain management spine. And most folks who end up going down that road for interventional pain and procedure heavy, I mean, they tend to make a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. rarely is it the case that they're not, um, you know, again, the math that we usually do is like, okay, you know, your student loan burden is at least 1.5x greater than your income. Maybe. PSLF yeah, makes more sense. I know different people have different thresholds for that. Uh, but these folks tend to, again, because they're, they're, the average salary is a lot higher mm-hmm. for them, it usually makes sense to refine it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you advise people to think about the lien, loan repayment um, that take private practice jobs and don't want to pursue PSLF or just it doesn't make sense to them because of financial reasons? Mm-hmm. You know, is it pay off aggressively? Is it a 20-year plan, 25-year, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. What's the conversation like?
1: Yeah, I think um, so. I think early on, if we're if we're talking to someone who's about to go into training or they are still in training, but they they clearly know they're going to be going private sector route, then mm-hmm. the thought process then is okay. Well, how can we reduce your cost now? Like, what are the easiest ways we can reduce the cost of your repayment now? And oftentimes, those who are going private sector, they they still can't throw a ton of money towards the loans in residency or in training. So we talk about repay and the benefits of the repay subsidy or the interest discount that that plan has. Because the, you know, repay, what it does is it allows you to pay based off of your income. So if you're in residency, that payment would be proportionate, of course, to your residency salary. Um, And then that payment we know is not going to cover interest if your, if your balance is Mm -hmm. still pretty large. So you're making a payment, it's, probably going all to interest but you're still probably not paying off all the interest that's charged that month so in a normal world that would mean your balance is growing at whatever you didn't pay but repay what it does is it will waive half of that accruing interest so the balance will still be growing while you're in residency or fellowship or training but it'll be growing a lot slower than it could be definitely than it could be if you just put the loans into deferment or forbearance while you were in in training because then it's growing at a hundred percent of what your interest cost is instead of maybe like half or a little more than half um so that's that's a strategy we use early on take advantage of repays subsidy early on to just reduce the interest cost or interest growth over time then when they get into training or in into attending Um, that higher income starts coming in, that's when uh, you can pull the trigger on maybe looking into refinancing. And refinancing is a permanent decision, so we always talk about it carefully Mm -hmm. because once you leave the federal system, you cannot come back. But if someone who's going private practice knows that they're going to stay that direction, that's okay because then the game plan might be to pay it down to zero. And refinancing is the only way you can reduce your interest rate Uh, Once you no longer have the repay subsidy, the repay subsidy kind of acts like you have a reduced interest rate by how much it charges. Um, But in the attending world, refinancing is the only way you can reduce that rate. So we recommend you going that direction. And should you be super aggressive? Um, I think that depends on the goals that you have and and what interest rate you get, because if you refinance and you get a 3% interest rate, there's not really an incentive to throw a ton of money towards that loan anymore, when you could be making, you know, seven, eight, nine percent investing, or putting money towards your retirement. Because then you're missing out, on, even though that debt is costing you three percent, you're missing out on potentially five, six, seven percent of growth. Um, so that's those are sometimes the right, conversations. Or-
0: yeah. I mean, even better paying off credit card debt. Oh which yeah. twenty like Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Prioritize but, other higher yeah. debt first, but if you have 3% as your interest rate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you, you brought up the the interest rate and I think that, that raises the question, you know, the Fed's just, I think, raised last week or the week before. And at least, you know, we were just in the kind of the real estate market and I'm hearing like now interest rates are in the 6%. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine for student loans, it's, maybe not as high, but what kind of interest rates are you seeing right now? And, you know, how is that changing that conversation for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Inflation has definitely impacted any debt, any debt interest rate. Um, It's positively impacted, like, high-yield savings accounts, though. Like, people have been happy about seeing Mm -hmm. those go back up. But um, we have seen an impact in the refinancing space. Uh, So some company – well, we actually had one one situation – two days ago where someone a a physician who had really great credit great income was looking to refinance a good pretty good debt to income ratio but looking into refinancing gearing up for 2023 and he got offered a six percent interest rate and that to us is high because we were seeing like three percent two and a half percent like a year ago so it has definitely taken a hit um we think you know, as inflation starts to chill out a bit, um, we think things could also climb their way back down. Um, and, and, you know, when interest rates kick back in with federal loans, these private student loan companies are going to have more of an incentive to be competitive. Because right now, there's no competition with the federal loan interest rates. It's at 0%. So, <laughs> you know, uh, these private companies, they, they've probably been hurting. Some of them have been combining or, you know, absorbing each other. Um, but there are still a lot of, a lot of them out there. There will always be a lot of them out there. Um, but when interest rates get turned back on, they have an incentive to look attractive for people to then start refinancing again. Cause if your federal interest rate is six and a half or 7%, you know, the, the attraction there is to, to get a lower interest rate to get your business. So I think there's some checks and balances there too, that we'll see in 2023, mm-hmm. but, um, rates are not great right now. That's, that is true.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So, you know, with that, what, um, what are some resources where you point people to when you're suggesting that they shop around for getting the best possible rates, you know, even given this market and and what we talked about before?
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. So I do think studentloanplanner.com is a good resource. Uh, we track most, I think almost all of the big jumbo companies that are out there right now. Um, the two that are brokers, there's, uh, there is Credible and Splash. Those two Mm -hmm. companies are what's called brokers, which they will shop up to 10 to 12 different companies to include also credit unions in your local area. So those are definitely worth a shot because it it casts a really wide net. And then you could, of course, shop as many as you want. But really what you're doing is you're just trying to shop for the best rate.
0: Awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and we'll we'll link all that, especially the SLP website that you you recommended because I do sure. think that this has been a wealth of resource and I know that just as I mentioned at the outset, just because of people asking to have you come on, um, <laughs> they're going to benefit from all the all the awesome content you guys are putting out there.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. So I know we we just have a couple moments left here, but I, mm-hmm. I want to spend some time talking about building wealth because mm-hmm. if people go back to the archives, you started off talking about how your your career really started as a financial coach. And it wasn't until later when you realized that every single person, I think you said with the exception of one, who didn't <laughs> yeah. have student loans in the conversation, and it was a significant piece of the the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we spent a few hours talking about this, but you know we often, and myself included, right, my mm-hmm. my financial education journey started because of the anxiety of student loans. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, I think we have to figure out, hey, what are we going to attack first? And for some people, the student loan burden is a bigger part of the puzzle. Others is smaller. Mm-hmm. And so it, let's, before we, we talk about some strategies of how we can continue building wealth with the context of student loan in the back of our mind, maybe let's define some rules. Because you, you did a recent podcast on this, and I only just recently came to learn about how a financial coach is different than a planner, than an advisor, than, (laughs) uh, I I love how you call them. Who did you do that with? Who was your colleague with you? Oh, that was Sim.
1: Sim on our team. Mm -hmm. I
0: I love that, um, you call them sales representatives or or something of that nature. Uh, And, uh, it's a clear distinction. And so I'll let you take that away and and define, you Mm -hmm. know, some of those terms. So people understand like, what's the role of each of these folks. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, so I'll start with coaching because I think that's that's in my realm. So coaching is what I do. Um, a financial coach, they there's no license for this. So that's one thing to oh. know. And that's also something to be careful about uh, when you're looking for someone to work with. But a coach, it is a up and coming um, niche in financial planning or like a practice area in financial planning, I would say. And coaching, I think, is designed for people who are not quite ready for um, the, the big, complicated tax planning strategies, retirement planning strategies, investment strategies. Like, those are, of course, going to be important one day. But these, you know, I think the basics are what a coach are is helpful in helping someone establish for themselves. So a budget uh, could be student loans, paying down other kinds of debt um, you know, really getting a handle on, you know, just the cash flow that's coming in, what's going out, uh, emergency savings, starting to save. I think that's a big part of what my job is too as a coach is I want to start building those habits now because it, it is so hard to grow into a nice big income in the future without saving and then have to like whittle yourself back down into like forcing mm. yourself to save again. <laughs> and so... So my, a big goal in my process is, you know, let's get these things, these basics done, right. Let's get the habits established so you can grow from here. And then folks graduate from me and start working with uh, investment advisors or certified financial planners is what I typically recommend. Um, so I think the coach in summary is for the basics, getting the foundation Mm -hmm. of your plan in place. Um, A certified financial planner is who I recommend folks work with if they want to do some more retirement planning, investment planning, really comprehensive financial planning. They're kind of the doctors in the financial planning space. Um, It's a very, it's a well-known designation. uh, CFP, Uh, we also recommend going for a fee-only advisor or a fee-only CFP because that means that they only charge a fee for their services. And that can be either a flat fee like, you know, X amount for working with them for the year, or it can be a flat percentage off of assets. So if they manage assets for you or investments for you, it can be just one percentage off of whatever um, you have invested with them. So that, there's two different ways to do that, but it keeps the compensation question um, or the, the compensation easy in the sense of there's no question as to if they're getting compensated to recommend something to you um such as a product or a service
0: um i want to jump in right there actually you know so as i mentioned i think i started off learning about so it was that month after medical school so 2017 june and i just somehow landed on white coat investor and i went down this rabbit hole and then Mm -hmm. i was just addicted and since then i think that's kind of been the basis of learning all my financial education to start mm-hmm. off with, right before, or just like uh, the steep learning curve that you have. So, the intro to financial education with White co Investor, you know, Ryan Inman, you guys, obviously, Ben White from Student Loans, uh, Mr. Money Mustache, all these guys that mm-hmm. the blog Passive Income India that I think about. And time and time again, what the consensus amongst all these folk is is exactly what you mentioned go for fee only. Mm-hmm. I've been Thinking about this a lot, though. Yeah. You know, just because somebody is fee based or Mm -hmm. does uh, like AUM model or something like that, doesn't necessarily mean they're they're gonna like, for lack of a better word, honor those disclosures, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. just there's a potential for conflict. But I think you might have mentioned this before. There are a lot of great people who work under that model, but will give good advice, non-biased advice. Yeah. Right? Would you agree with that?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: So then the question becomes: Is how does one Figure that out. That you have somebody who potentially has a conflict, but yeah. that's a, a good professional in that regard, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are there questions? Are there tactics?
1: I think there are questions, and I think all all this to say too, like interview the person that you want to work with, or interview a few people, just like a job. Like you know, you want to interview the person that you're going to let handle your money or help. With these money conversations, you want to make sure you're jiving with them personality-wise that you like their process. So that's important. Um, but some some really key questions to ask is the compensate. That's the easiest question. You know, how are you compensated? And you can follow that up with, are there any conflicts of interest? Uh, which they could provide you like a, a more formal disclosure on these things. But are there any conflicts of interest and in how you're compensated? And what you're looking for with that question is, you know if they, for example, if they make a recommendation for life insurance, are they going to get compensated on whether or not you implement that life insurance? Um, is there an incentive incentive of some kind for them to upsell you? Um, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of, and I think whole life insurance gets a horrible rep in the financial planning space, are are Mm -hmm. they going to sell you whole life or term when you really just need the, the life insurance coverage? So, um, asking those questions i think asking just anything about their process is helpful um but you know being a cfp or being fee only you're exactly right doesn't always mean that you're always going to serve it, you know that that person in a fiduciary capacity because the cfp designation does obligate that individual or that professional to have a fiduciary standard uh when they're working with you um so that i think that is important with the CFP is that they are they are required to act in that capacity. Um, if not they lose their licensure um, and that's similar to in the medical space too, right? Like y'all have oh y'all don't. Mm-hmm. Oh okay. No no, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're required to. Yeah. But you know so I guess that the follow-up question naturally would be is there like a reporting process if somebody feels quote unquote wronged in that say, hey mm-hmm. that the uh, my financial planner uh, in this instance, there was a conflict of interest, wasn't disclosed, or whatever the reasons mm-hmm. is, and I don't think they acted in you know, in my best interest. Like, is there a reporting process? Can you report to an agency, or like, how does that work?
1: You can. see so we're you... not encouraging
0: anything, but yeah, I'm just asking.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you can you can report it to their firm. Um, you can report it to the CFP board, and there is a uh process that that individual would go through for some kind of resolution. Um, and there, there would be something, some kind of review that would have to happen. Um, and the question is, do they keep their license or not based on that complaint? Um, yeah. so there is a process. Um, probably- but I'm
0: willing to bet though, it, it's going to be harder because I, I
1: mm-hmm.
0: anytime you sign up with somebody, they're making you sign a million things. and I'm sure in the fine yeah. plant that the, all the disclosures are listed there and mm-hmm. rarely do people end up reading all those things because again yeah you know as we've talked about before they're just written in jargon that we're not trained to interpret yeah. at all
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know but yeah the, you know the reason i was thinking about this because you know as you might know we spend a lot of time talking about topics related to other aspects of physical and you know emotional health and especially mm-hmm. nutrition right we spend a lot of energy and time talking about that and you know it's just a highly contested and debated topic on social media and really anywhere
2: mm-hmm.
0: and one of the things the opponents of you know um things that are not pharmaceutical based or uh, supplementation and that kind of stuff um you know they'll say okay well you have to look at the disclosures and the Mm. authors of the study are doing uh, research but they're funded by xyz food company or they're funded by this supplement company and and i think about that you know again this is kind of a little tangential but you know these things aren't they're not getting nih funding they're not getting funding from large academic institutions there isn't an incentive study these things and that's what makes it challenging so you know a previous guest dr sean arndt came and talked about how it's more important for us to look at the methods and uh, rather than you know who who uh funded the study i mean that's Mm -hmm. the biases should be acknowledged should be appreciated and that's kind of what i'm hearing from you if this analogy is making sense that transparency is critical right Mm -hmm. and so when if you ask that question if i ask that question next time i have a conversation I'm, I ask somebody, "Hey, how do you get paid?" And I get this some roundabout answer yes. and something re- like really complex that I cannot understand straightforward. And I, I think I'm I'm somewhat of a smart person. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that's a red flag to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of what I'm hearing from you as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I think transparency is definitely the right word, and I think you're exactly right. Like if something can't be explained very simply, that is a red mm-hmm. flag, and that that deserves yeah. a little more investigation or you moving elsewhere.
0: Yeah. Which is what's awesome about the fee-only model, right? It's like, this is the hourly rate, this -hmm. is the yearly rate, this is the monthly rate subscription, whatever model people just decide to go by. Uh, I want to go back to the the coaching aspect. I love that because it does start at the, the, you know, the the, the whole aspect of, you know, personal finances, the behavioral Mm -hmm. aspect, right? That's Mm -hmm. the budgeting. You talked about buzzwords, right? Budgeting, saving, all these things are extremely (laughs) challenging, especially when we go from residency and all of a sudden you've 3X or 4X or 5X your, mm-hmm. your income and, and you've delayed gratification. Those two words, right? You hear that throughout the training for so long mm-hmm. um, and you want to live a little more of a lavish lifestyle. And yeah. you know, I mentioned Ryan Inman before, he kind of talks about give yourself a, uh, a 50% raise. Like So if you're making 50000 spend $75,000 next year. Mm-hmm. right but then there's the other side of the coin they're like live like a resident for five years after <laughs> right. residency and right? pay off that <laughs> debt and and so i mean it, all these movements you've got fire you've got fat fire you've got all that kind of stuff
2: mm-hmm.
0: so you know speaking about tactics um are there budgeting apps or techniques that you'd like to so people to really get hone in on their finance and tracking that kind of stuff what do you like to use
1: Ooh, that's a great question. So there's a lot of free apps out there. Like mint.com mm-hmm. is for free. Um, I, I use that to just pull a lot of my personal data together. Um, They're a
0: little clunky though.
1: They, they are clunky. It's, it's also reactive in the sense mm. that it can only gather, and, and a lot of budgeting apps are going to be like that. Like They can only gather the information that's happened in the past. Um, they're, they're supposed to have those things. And there's a couple like features of mint where you can create budgets, but it, it, it is clunky. It is also free, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you get
0: what you pay for, I suppose.
1: Yep. I like, uh, you need a budget or YNAB. Y-N-A-B. Y-N-A-B yeah. That's a great one too. You, you are treated as the CFO of your household, which I love. Um, we actually had a podcast episode, um, on YNAB with the the founder, which I thought was pretty cool on student loan planners podcast. Awesome. Um, that's a good one uh i think the awareness is a big part of the budgeting conversation um almost always when when i ask folks to collect their numbers on how much they've spent on average like over the past couple months on certain areas like almost always it's oh my gosh i did not realize how much i was spending in that area Mm. or You know and there's there's certain areas that are naturally going to be higher you know there are some common areas that are just higher um maybe when you're younger or when you're going through residency or um you know when you have children there's just categories fluctuate over time but um, the awareness is important and also Mm -hmm. you know starting to understand the flow like are you overspending are you spending above your means um are there some areas that you can cut or reduce Um, so the awareness and the behavior around like why we spend our, our money on certain things is really important as part of the the coaching process.
0: Yeah. What do you use personally? Mint?
1: I use mint, but I actually have, so similar to how I work with my clients, I have a Google sheet that I use personally. Mm, So it's old school. I know it is old school, but it works for me um and i think that's the the you know budgeting has to work for you like it can't be too complicated so
0: (laughs) yeah no much like anything else yeah Uh, you know we we used to use YNAB and what i loved Mm -hmm. about it is just the the actual app on on our iphone was really nice and Mm -hmm. um but there is a steeper learning curve though like you have to kind of get used to the way that because it's this concept of zero cost budgeting or something they call it um, where every dollar is assigned a job so um we might end up going back to we're doing mint right now but Yeah. Oh, that's why you
1: said it was clunky. You're like, ah, I've got to beat. Yeah. Yeah. Just. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, So, uh, other things that you know, you talked about, um, kind of the investing piece of it. When you first start working with a client, so setting those the behavioral aspect, Mm -hmm. do you use some type of um, like a risk assessment, like or an investor profile questionnaire, or is that more of the financial planner aspect when they're going to be starting to work with numbers?
1: That is more of the financial planner aspect. So the risk tolerance mm-hmm. questionnaires, the starting to really fine tune the investment strategy. That's when you graduate from a coaching program. Um, but we start to get the habit of saving and investing during the, the early stages. So you know, definitely getting the match, like starting to invest with your employer 401k. Um, I encourage a lot of my clients to start maxing out their 401ks as soon as they can. Um, because a lot of the folks I work with have student loans, they're going towards loan forgiveness. So the more they put in pre-tax buckets, the better for their student loan payments. So we talk about that. We talk about how getting that habit early on is great because then they just don't think about it in the future. Like it's just, it's already not part of their budget and it's, they've, they've set themselves up nicely to save really early and often, which is key. Um, so, that's about the extent that I get into coaching is just getting the habit established now, starting to put some numbers to things, but the investment strategy comes how, later.
0: How does someone um, become like or qualify, or how do you determine that somebody's fit to graduate from coaching and moving on to a financial planner?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say I've had a lot of really fun, like graduates recently that I get really excited about mm-hmm. thinking about. So, I, I think it's time for someone to graduate from coaching when. Um, they're, yeah. they're pretty spot on what they're spending. Like they don't really, um, they don't, have, they don't have, let me, maybe back up and rephrase that. They're really on par with, where their money's going on a month-to-month basis, they're checking off their goals each and every month. So if they had a goal to put X amount in savings for their house down payment or, Mm -hmm. you know, do X, Y, Z, like they're checking their boxes for their goals every single month or pretty close to it. Everyone's not perfect. It's not going to happen every month, but they're pretty darn close to every month. Um, And they're starting to... Uh, I think also the interest in starting to learn a little bit more about investing—that's yeah. important to me to know that they're they're ready for those conversations. Um, so I think some of those things, like checking the boxes for the the goals that they've already set, um, being on track with where where they are finding like where we thought they were going to be based on our our uh, planning, and then the interest in starting to take the next step.
0: Yeah, I imagine there are some times where they're still continuing to work with you, but also using the services of financial planner simultaneously.
1: Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's very common where someone will graduate from coaching, but still need help with student loan stuff Mm -hmm. because we know that that changes all the time. So (laughs) yeah.
0: Where do you stand on emergency funds?
1: Ooh. So, uh, for my coaching clients, I pretty standardly want folks to build up a three month emergency savings. Um, three three to six months, usually it's three months. I don't work with a lot of um, entrepreneurs or folks that have very variable income. So I think six months is a great bucket for those that have very unexpected income or life circumstances. Um, but three months I think is perfect. I think it also shows the grit for them to get there, like the determination for them to get to that number. Um, mm-hmm. Do they keep it at three months always? Maybe not if they're very responsible with their money. They, you know, um, there's other goals that we're working towards. Maybe you know, we relax the the emergency savings a little bit. Maybe we have that in a different bucket, like a higher yield savings or like a brokerage account of some kind. But um, that's that's where I'm at right now. It depends on the person, but generally three months.
0: There's some folks who may argue that you know, again as i mentioned we come out with so much debt and often because our training can be anywhere from 7 to 12 13 years depending on what kind of program you're in
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know our colleagues that we graduated i mean they have this head start and we know that time in the market beats timing the market all the time right i mean you kind of mentioned that's why it's important to start saving early like very early investing cuz yeah compound interest is a powerful thing um and so just when we're trainees there's a thought that maybe you could put it in the Roth because you'll qualify for it at that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a little bit easier to pull that money out. So using that as an emergency fund. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that?
1: Uh, I've definitely heard this approach. Uh, do I like it? No, because it, it is a little more complicated to get that money out. Um, it's not as easy as moving it from one savings account to your checking or even a high mm-hmm. yield savings to checking. So it's, it's not as instant, which might be good if someone is testing if it's really an emergency you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but you know i I could see the arguments for putting it in a rock because it it is accessible um there are still some rules around like having the account open for at least five years so there's some things that you have to to pay attention to there but I, i could see someone who you know who Gets frustrated with money just sitting in savings, wanting to use that Roth approach, um, but that might be for someone who's already graduated from coaching, and that's that's a good place yeah. to be in.
2: <laughs> Love that.
0: So, you know, speaking of the Roth, you did mention maximizing the pre-tax accounts so we can reduce that AGI. We can reduce the um, the student loan payments, right? That's kind of what we talked about last time as well. Mm-hmm. But there's this age-old debate, and I do have to get your take. But yeah. For Roth versus pre-tax, especially, and I want to get it in the lens of somebody who is just graduating. This is a little selfish because this is me. Somebody who just graduated from <laughs> from training and are they're going into the attending, attending hood. So mm-hmm. so they're it's a half a year and they still qualify for both, but always keeping the student loan part in the back of our mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you how do you approach that conversation?
1: Oh uh, yeah. So I think um, I, I do when it comes to student loan planning, like in the back of my mind we have the conversation about pre-tax buckets like 403b 401k because it reduces adjusted gross income it reduces your tax bill today too um so you know for student loan planning purposes if you're trying to go for the lowest payment then pre-tax is the way to go um if you're someone who's you know going into private well and, and you know there's also the conversation of what do you think taxes are going to do by the time you get to retirement? And <laughs> no one knows that I am on the stance of, I think you should have money in both buckets. Um, you know, at some point you should have money in Roth money in pre-tax because that gives you options in retirement where if the tax environment, when you go to retire is, you know, taxes are on sale. Great pull from your pre-tax accounts. You haven't paid taxes on that yet. If taxes are in a really low environment, when you go to retire, then you can use those assets first. Um, if,
0: what does that mean? Taxes are on sale. What does
2: that mean? As
1: in like if, um, tax, tax brackets and general income tax Mm. is low. Um, if we're in a really like, for example, like in the sixties, seventies, um, it was, we were in a horrible tax environment. Income taxes were up to 70%. Um, and so if you went to retire and you had a bunch of 401k pre-tax money, like you're being taxed quite a bit once you go to retire on that that money. So rock money in the 70s would have been great <laughs> because you were already taxed on it, maybe in a lower tax environment. Um, so we, of course, that's a really aggressive example. That was probably a really horrible um, economic time um for our nation but um you know having options in retirement is key and so i think having money in both is is good so you have the option and the discretion to choose which buckets to pull from and when
2: yeah
0: and i think (laughs) this this last couple of minutes you know, that we talked about and really just the last couple of hours that we've had a conversation with it just gives people a sense of how complicated this can be
2: oh yeah <laughs> it,
0: just assume loans by itself but then when you look at it in the global picture of financial health right and we look mm-hmm. at about investing and, and doing the calculations of first of all we don't know what 20 years from 30 years from now or 40 years from now when one's going to retire what the tax market's going to look like mm-hmm. or taxes, what bracket you're going to be in. But also, how does that affect your student loans? Is it more um, financially beneficial to go ahead and maximize one account versus another? And So mm-hmm. that's exactly why I think th- there's there's a lot of utility to not bury her, our head in the sand, educate ourselves financially, yeah. as Ryan and Inman previously came back and talked about. But if not, if this doesn't interest you know healthcare practitioners, then they do have to go out and outsource and hire somebody who's doing it the right way you guys are clearly uh one of those folks but there are a lot of other great professionals out there and, and I'll, I'll find some of those people that i think and i'm sure i'm going to miss some, and, and link that mm-hmm. in here mm-hmm. i do want to get your uh give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your your pre-debt um coaching or, or counseling that you guys call because I, mm-hmm. I i heard you talk uh, about maybe it was with lauren or, or somebody else um about like it's one of the listeners who was asking about whether or not they should get married because their uh, fiance had like a really large debt burden and how confusing that was. And I mean, those type of horror, horrifying stories are, student loans should not dictate that, right? And yeah. another, yeah. so that's like the negative aspect of it. And the other thing is uh, Travis recently had somebody on the on the podcast where this person was a teacher, I think. And she had um, like the the income of seventy thousand, but was able to get like eighty thousand of debt. And at that point, Mm -hmm. um, he said to me, "You might there's a loophole. You might be able to take out all that they're offering you because if you're gonna go for loan forgiveness at that point, the you know the marginal cost of dollar is zero for you because it's gonna get forgiven anyway." And he mentioned Mm -hmm. that that's something you guys discuss in your pre uh, pre debt counseling as well. So, Mm -hmm. what's that program about? You know, how did it start, and like Mm -hmm. who should consider it?
1: Yeah. You are awesome. You are all, you're SLP uh, fan. <laughs> you're you're a, a true fan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, but yes, we do have a pre-debt consultation. Um, so this this came about a little later. We we Our bread and butter has always been student loan repayment planning. Um, that's the majority of our work still. Most people come to us after they already have the debt, but pre-debt planning has become more and more important. Um, really because school is not getting cheaper and I think I'm glad there's starting to be more conversation about the value of school and the cost of programs and comparing those things so our our, um, pre-debt consultation helps people take a look at um, you know if they're going to school for being a veterinarian for example you know what is the estimated cost based on the school that they're going towards are going to, and usually they have these numbers handy because they're they're looking at these opportunities already. So we look at the cost of attendance, we look at the potential income opportunity in the future for what area they wanna go into, um, which this is all using assumptions, but I think we can make some pretty educated assumptions on that. Um, and then we take a look at, okay, so if, if you were to borrow the full cost of attendance, what does this look like when it comes to repayment? Um, and you know we walk through should someone go the forgiveness path like pslf or longer term forgiveness or is this is this path going to take you more towards like a pay it down to zero approach with your student loans and we just kind of have those conversations and that was a good example with with travis's um conversation about um you know borrowing the most that you have access to which sounds like really scary and irresponsible to say hey just borrow everything that they give you (laughs) but there does become a point where it just doesn't matter how much you borrow because if you're going to be going towards loan forgiveness your payments are based off of income and so if you borrowed two hundred thousand and get 100 forgiven but you know you pay based off of income over over that timeline so it it doesn't really make a difference if that makes sense um so we have those conversations really to help just paint the picture instead of going into school blind worrying about the money side of things thinking that you're going to have to graduate and you know uh, sacrifice everything to pay the loans off within 10 years like that doesn't have to be the, the approach. And we just use math to try to figure out how you should be thinking about your schooling. And if that to you or to that person makes sense and or, or, it, you know, if that sits well with them, like if they are a forgiveness case, are they OK with having the loans around for, you know, 20 years, 25 years to go towards the income driven path? or are they okay with committing to public service? So those are some of the things that we, we weigh and we talk about in that.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I think it's an awesome resource. It's a thoughtful approach. I think as we've highlighted multiple times, I mean, these decisions, if you make the wrong one off the start, it can be thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. in some cases, depending on you know what plan, if you're in the wrong plan or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I know I mentioned that we're gonna wrap up here, but I do wanna, do you have a couple more minutes? Or you yeah. going, wanna talk about the cost of higher education? Sure. Awesome. So, <laughs> I think part of the reason we're even sitting down here and we're in this mess in the first place is because the cost of higher education graduate programs just exponentially has been rising over the past couple of years and it doesn't seem like there is an Uh, end near right i've got um i've got a baby daughter now and you know i start thinking about the 529 and whatnot because i need to start Mm -hmm. you know saving for her college and 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 i was just kind of i pulled up some some rough numbers here and Mm -hmm. you know i'm the state of new jersey that's where i went to undergrad and just the data for the state tuition since nineteen ninety to two thousand eight, the average in state tuition has tripled. And this is for the state schools. Then I looked mm-hmm. at some of the medical schools. My medical school, in particular, you know, I matriculated in twenty thirteen, so coming up on a decade, mm-hmm. and a decade later, the tuition, just the tuition in itself, is twenty thousand dollars more. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Particularly, and, and that's just one example, right? I imagine yeah. some of the, the the schools out on the on the West Coast in California, and you know, particularly Southern California, that's got to be two twice as much as that. But what's particularly frustrating to me about that, specifically medical school in general, is that you know third and fourth years are being charged the same amount of tuition. And I don't know how familiar you are with what kind of happens during the third and fourth clerkship years, as we call them when they're doing rotations, especially fourth year, when most of the students end up doing their rotations at outside institutions, outside hospitals, we call them audition rotations or sub-internships where they're trying to you know, really shine for their program. And so mm-hmm. for like seven to nine months out of the year, they have no connection with their home institution, mm-hmm. yet they're being charged anywhere from 60 to $70,000. And that's just like, it makes no sense to me. So mm-hmm. all that being said, <laughs> Why is this happening? Tell
1: us. Why is it happening? Well, because it can. Um, In the sense of uh, there is no limit on how much you can borrow uh, when it comes to federal direct loans because the Department of Education has given schools the ability to dictate their own. Well, they can. They can dictate their own cost of attendance. And you can borrow federal student loans up to the cost of attendance. So if you know that third and fourth year the college tells department of ed hey it costs 60 70,000 for my third and fourth year folks going through this program you can borrow that you can borrow that if it was 30,000 you could borrow up to 30,000 if it was 100,000 you can borrow up to 100,000 so the schools have figured it out and i may have said something similar to this when we talked about it last time um, but the schools have figured out that they have no incentive to keep the costs of school down because they know that forgiveness exists with student loans for those who don't make enough post-graduation to pay the loans off. And, um, that, you know, is now getting some attention because we're, we're now getting to a point where forgiveness is, is definitely part of the conversation, but we also haven't gotten to the point yet where mass income driven forgiveness has like timed out, meaning, um, 20, 25 years, this this all started early, or uh, let's say 2007, when some of these income driven plans started coming out. So people haven't gotten to 20 or 25 years yet of loan forgiveness based on these current plans. So it's not, I, I think there's going to be a bigger blowback on these, you know, on the cost of attendance conversation when people see it like when people see how much student loans are getting forgiven after 20 or 25 years. Um, but right now it's just, it's kind of like a, you know, it's a fake number. It's a fake, not fake conversation. Cause it's real, it exists. It'll happen, right. but no one's actually seen the forgiveness yet. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, in summary, I think schools just don't have any incentive to keep the cost down and they could borrow, you know, they, they can, they can dictate what it is.
0: So, and yeah, I think just to put some numbers on it, I—I I mean, we're talking I currently, even though you mentioned that release the ten-year program. Uh, folks that that have gone through that program, we're talking in the several upwards of several billions of dollars, right? I, I mm-hmm. can't remember exactly what I heard. Are, are we talking in the tens of billions? Or is it much more than that, that the current forgiveness has been? Do you have a sense of what it is? Oh, the top of your head? Uh,
1: so I think 145 billion was estimated. Yeah. yeah, so estimated 145. But we're, we're not there yet. I think we're climbing towards that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, so I guess, I guess, if the imp- more important question is, how does it stop? Kind of what I'm hearing from you is, when that bill gets to be large enough and, and enough people actually do get forgiven and we talked about it, yeah. it, it is here to stay despite what the headlines have yeah. said four or five years ago like it's going to happen yeah and when you know several hundred billion dollars get forgiven department ads going to realize oh hey this is not a bad idea oh, this is not a good idea yeah. and we don't want to get rid of pslf maybe they will they keep talking about restructuring it over and over and over again depending on which party's in 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 um in command but the other way to look at it is maybe we reduce the cost of education i mm-hmm. mean do you are you more optimistic about that
1: i think i think there will be some so it's it's a tricky because do you, does government or do you know are there going to be limits on how much a business a school is a business can charge mm-hmm. for their services like that's a really tricky conversation <laughs> So, you know, maybe there's some kind of I I think what might happen first is more accountability on the schools where they have more skin in the game for people who get loan forgiveness. Like if if they have put their students in a position where they had to go towards loan forgiveness and they get X amount forgiven, well, maybe the college picks up, you know, half of that bill or something. Um, This is just like me talking, rambling. But, um, you know, I think more things like that would happen first than dictating Mm -hmm. or putting caps on how much the cost um for school can be because then that really leads us down a slippery slope to putting constraints on what businesses can do and and that's probably not a good place to go to
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're certainly not going to get to the bottom of it today. I don't think anybody really knows, but I do <laughs> want to give people something to think about. And, and I want to open up that conversation because I do think that's a that's a serious problem. And it's somewhat of a frustrating problem. And, you know, we always talk about getting to the root cause, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that this is certainly one of them. Megan, I want to thank you again for um sitting down with us and uh you know talking student loans taking a deep dive and also i'm glad that we got to touch on um a little bit about financial coaching and financial health in general because i think as much energy as we spend talking about student loans and Mm -hmm. it's important it's forefront of everybody's mind um overall this is a big part of the financial plan and financial health as we talked about last time so thanks so much and can't wait to do it again
1: yeah thank you
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Medicine Redefined. As promised, if you'd like to dive further into any of the topics we discussed today, please be sure to check out the show notes where you have a lot of great resources to learn more about student loans, but also personal finance and financial health with a focus on healthcare practitioners. As always, please remember that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only, and it does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice or financial advice of any sort. No physician or client-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician, your personal financial uh, planner, your financial coach, like Megan, for any health or financial related advice. Um, I cannot stress the importance of working with a good financial professional if you don't have the interest yourself to educate and learn about uh, these somewhat complex, um, if not highly complex topics, especially when it comes to the student loan landscape, which is constantly changing and constantly evolving. However, if you enjoy this show, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with anyone who you think will gain value. And as always, we are happy to hear feedback. You can reach us at medredefined at gmail.com or on social media. Our handle is medredefined on all the usual suspects. So please be sure to reach out.
2: And until next time, thank you for listening.